This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Occasionally, the journalistic Bible, the AP style book, is updated. Routine updates in language. Language changes over time. Well, recently there were 40 changes made in the religion section of the AP style book. Will it improve religion reporting? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. What is the AP style book, and how important is it to American journalism? Well, let's put it this way. How important to the Catholic Church is the catechism? Or how important to Lutherans are some of the Lutheran confessions, you know, in terms of defining what's up, what's down, what's in, what's out, what's right, what's wrong. So, I mean, the AP style book is, the word style is used here in a very technical sense. It's not like fun style or exciting style. It's more like going beyond grammar. What do the words mean? I'll give you a funny example from my own life, because every major newsroom, and small newsrooms usually, have at their city desk, they have their local style book, because there are things that happen in local language and stuff like that, that they don't come up in other cities. My all-time favorite, and I, I say this as a person who spent three years as a full-time copy editor, someone who lived with the style book in my hand and my cheat sheets for the most important rules and edited copy all day and all night as a job. When I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was writing one of my first stories and it hit me, what do you call people who live in Charlotte, North Carolina? Well, if you stop and think about it and apply kind of normal grammatical style, people who live in Charlotte would be charlatans. The only problem is that the word charlatan has another meaning, right? And it's not a nice thing to call them all charlatans. So the local style through the years for broadcast and for print has developed that that word is pronounced charlatans. Well, that's a, that's a funny and eccentric local example of style. Well, you can imagine all of the style issues that would come up just take it like a sport like soccer, or take it if you were covering the Pentagon, how much technical language would you have to use? If you were covering Capitol Hill, how many specific word choices are made in the American legislative system and then in the judicial system that people would need to know? I mean, if you're gonna cover the World Cup of soccer, you better know the game of soccer. So inside, the AP style book for the planet are words that specifically apply to the field of religion writing. And so what we're talking about today is efforts to update 
and tweak some of the references in the style book that have to do with religion. Because to put it specifically, what listeners could think about, though, if you know anything at all about Get Religion and the work we've done for coming up on 20 years, you know that most of the worst mistakes about religion are not made by religion writers. They're made by people on other beats, politics and sports and law and whatever. And these are people who don't know the religion sections of the style book well. So what's the use of having a style book if a lot of the mistakes that are made consistently and repeatedly are made by people who don't know a discipline other than their own? So the style book, in a way, is a very idealistic thing. It's like the Catholic catechism. It's like cardinals and bishops and teachers trying to help their people understand the specifics of their faith. But does that really matter if nobody uses the book? Which brings us back to the age-old question, why don't most newsrooms have professionals who cover religion? Why is religion such a poorly covered subject in the first place? Okay, does that help? So of these 40 that have changed, what are the most significant new entries in that religion section of the updated AP style book? To me or to you, I'm going to try to guess. Let's say that there's a highly symbolic one because it's something you and I have discussed for our listeners many, many times. They've created an entry in the style book, a new one for the word devout. Now, most of the time when you and I talk about the word devout, why do we end up talking about it? Because for, well, more than a year, President Biden is routinely referred to in the press as a devout Catholic. Right. And so what does the word devout mean? Well, the new entry in the style book is a perfect example of what's going on with most of these changes in the first place, other than just technical languages, the names of churches and things like that. Like, what does the word Haggadah mean in a Jewish context for Passover? But the word devout is a perfect example of what's going on here. The new entry says, use sparingly, if at all. Better to be specific about a person's religious practice, i.e., an example, quote, he attends Mass daily, unquote, instead of calling someone devout. This is very similar to what we've had for a long time. There has been a perfectly logical and appropriate definition of the word fundamentalist in the style book which basically says, use sparingly, use it only when people use it to describe themselves and only when it's used to describe a specific set of doctrines related to the fundamentalist controversies and arguments within church history, primarily in the late 19th and early 20th century. So that's what the style book says. But when we see the word fundamentalist used most often, how do you hear the word fundamentalist used in press coverage that makes your skin crawl. Well, it's it's a derogatory term that strongly screams unintelligent, backward, yeah. things like yeah. that. Yeah, it's an F word. I mean, quite literally. It is the F word of American journalism. And, I mean, I've, you've heard John Paul II 
I used to be referred to as a fundamentalist Catholic in some stories. You have fundamentalist Islam, even though you don't have a word in Islam that even stands for that term. I mean, the term doesn't even exist. I mean, so basically it means people who take their religion literally, and specifically people who think the Bible is inerrant, would be a big word connected to it, even though biblical inerrancy is only one of the four or five doctrines that help define the term fundamentalist. So what's going on here with this attempt to define the word devout is that the concept that the way you've always heard me put it and the way Bobby Ross Jr. of Get Religion, who was someone who was hired as a consultant to help with these changes, as well as the, the religion beat patriarch Richard Osling of Get Religion, formerly the chief religion writer for Time magazine and then the Associated Press itself, he also served as a paid consultant for this project. One of the reasons you're not hearing Richard comment about it much. What Bobby would say is you're urging people, don't tell me, show me. Don't hit me with a misapplication of a vague, hazy term. Give me some specific information that tells me how much religion matters in a particular person's daily life. But the whole idea of Joe Biden calls himself devout, so he must be devout. He goes to church a lot, he must be devout. Well, that's only if the word devout has no doctrinal language or connotations that are referred to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, of which Biden believes a lot of it and openly admits that he doesn't believe a lot of it, or he doesn't believe a lot of it has anything to do with practical issues in daily life. You know, that might be hmm, affected by politics. The other way you've heard me describe it is that the press has a tendency to say that political meanings of words are real, and religious or doctrinal meanings for words are not so real. Politics is real. Religion isn't real. So the default setting is when in doubt, go to a political definition of certain terms. And that happens with religion all the time, if maybe, or a lot of the time. The term Catholic. Yeah. It's not a short entry like devout. Yeah. The change there or the additions there are, well, perhaps too subtle for maybe even most journalists to grasp. What huh. is the style book recommending about the term Catholic or Roman Catholic? Well, see, yeah, and that's the problem, is that the Catholic Church is bigger than the Roman and Western right. Let me give you an example that Richard Osling has talked about for decades. How often do you read in the press that Roman Catholic priests are required to be celibate? Quite often. Quite often. The problem is that that isn't accurate. The vast majority of Roman Catholic priests and the vast majority of Catholic priests, without the word Roman in front of it, the Western Rite, Latin Rite Catholic world, which is what we think of when we think of the Roman Catholic Church, yes, celibacy exists as a discipline within the Western Roman Church. But just to give you an example out of our current headlines right now, 
does that mean that the priests of the Ukrainian Catholic Church are celibate? And the answer is no, they're not, because they're a part of the East, one of the Eastern Rite Catholic Churches that are loyal to the Pope, loyal to Rome, but have maintained the older discipline and tradition of having married priests, but celibate monks and bishops. Within Eastern Orthodoxy, we have the same tradition because it goes back to the same period of time. Our priests, the vast majority of our priests are married, but monks and our bishops are celibate. That's the older tradition. Yet, if you told that to a lot of political writers who are covering Catholic politics involving sexuality and whatever, and they say, well, Catholic priests are celibate, you go, well, no, they're not really, the vast majority are, and, they, and what you get is they just kind of roll their eyes at you and go, well, that's a distinction without a difference. Well, the only problem is that the reference is inaccurate. It's simply wrong. And if you refer to the Ukrainian Catholic Church as the Roman Catholic Church, Catholics are just going to go, no, wait a minute, that's an Eastern Rite Church. That's the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is an Eastern Rite. And you, you go, well, who cares about that? Well, the people in the churches do, which gets us back again to this age-old question. Does it really matter if coverage of religion is accurate and fair-minded and serious, like serious topics in the newsroom, like sports or business or politics. You know, real subjects get taken seriously. So I hope that answers your question. Let's talk a little bit about, I've got a little list here though, Terry, but what about abortion terms? Are those included in any of the additions or changes? Oh yeah, and that's been a, an area of heated debate for a long, long time. And of course, what we had when I was back in the newsroom in the 80s, you had things like the actual style for how you referred to people involved in debates about abortion was anti-abortion, and then the other side was pro-choice. Now, what was fascinating about that is pro-choice, of course, was a label that people on that side of the issue chose to describe themselves. What would be the, the term that people on the opposite side of the abortion case would use to apply it to describe themselves? Pro-life. Pro-life. Well, you heard people make the kind of logical argument, but pro-lifers are rarely consistently pro-life. They're just pro-life when they want to be. But then meanwhile, you're using the word pro-choice, and the word pro-choice doesn't even tell you what's being chosen. So I was involved in just a whole decade of debates about that, and we ended up with what the style book recommends now, which is anti-abortion is not a perfect term, but it's at least accurate most of the time. I think it applies more to some political leaders I know than, say, the late Mother Teresa or something like that. But we ended up on the other side with something that doesn't go in a headline very well, but we chose the term, and I was one of the people who suggested this, pro-abortion rights. Now, these would be people like a Jimmy Carter 
someone who genuinely did not favor abortion. And in fact, his opposition to abortion probably split the Democratic Party and screwed up his attempts to run for a second term as president, among other things that were going on in politics and his life and his mistakes. But Jimmy Carter was someone that I had trouble calling pro-abortion because he was genuinely doing everything he could in the framework of American politics at that time to at least limit abortion. But what he was was pro-abortion rights. He didn't think that we were in a position where you could overturn Roe v. Wade at that stage of our American politics. Well, now what's really interesting about this, if you follow, I think one of the must-follow people on Twitter, is Dr. Robert P. George, the great legal scholar and Catholic thinker at Princeton University. He noted the other day that we now have an argument beginning among Democrats is that if the court is going to come out with a decision that either overturns Roe or severely limits abortion policies, allows states to do more to prevent abortion in the second and third trimesters in particular, there are people now on the progressive side of American politics who say that it's time to start using the term pro-abortion and admit that we actually are in favor of not just the right to this. We think that there are people and there are circumstances in which abortion is urgently needed, and we are going to admit that we are pro-abortion. And it's not a smear to call us pro-abortion, as people for years have said. It's You're smearing a Democrat if you call them pro-abortion, especially if they're a Catholic and they are privately opposed to abortion, but publicly in favor of abortion rights. That classic thin line that many Democrats have tried to walk. It's going to be interesting. What happens if a lot of people on the left, or what used to be called the left, begin saying that it's proper to use the term pro-abortion? Will the Associated Press stylebook go back and change its guidance, its advice on this term? I mean, to me, that's a great example of a term that used to be a smear term, but now maybe it's not anymore. And how do you get reporters to be consistent? What about the word evangelical? Well, yeah, we've done dozens of entries that get religion through the year. A lot of them, including the phrase, define evangelical, give me three examples. Well, the problem is that in the hands of political reporters, evangelical has turned into an explicitly political term. And it basically means a certain type of white Republican, probably pro-Trump person. So how often have you heard the word evangelical used and applied to the people who violated U.S. law on January 6th and crashed into the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to prevent the finishing of an American election. Here's what we need to get listeners to really think about in this sort of term, because this this is where I would say 90% of our arguments come up. It is accurate to say that many of the people who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, or at least some of them, were indeed white evangelicals. But is it accurate to say that white evangelicalism is why they invaded the Capitol. In other words, that the term evangelical or white evangelical even adequately describes 
the beliefs and the motivations that caused people to crash into the U.S. Capitol on that day. So some evangelicals, I would argue some specifically evangelicals from the world of highly independent evangelical and charismatic and Pentecostal megachurches or small churches or radically independent churches, of which there are many, many ways to describe who they are, what they do, and what they don't do. But what happened on January 6th cannot be attributed to the beliefs and the actions of mainstream evangelicalism as broadly defined. It's turning the word evangelical, like fundamentalist, it's turning it into a smear word instead of being a word that has specific historical content that journalists should try to take seriously, like words like Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or strict constitutional constructionist, you know, or all of these other terms that we use in political writing. Should reporters be more careful? At Get Religion, we argue, yes, that using vague, simplistic uses of a term like evangelical hurts the understanding the public has of what's actually going on in American political and religious life. So I think I saw the term nuns in the yeah, list, too. Yeah, yeah, they added that. And that's really good that they did. But that's a great example of a term that has popped up in the eight to ten years since the release of the Pew Forum study on the religiously unaffiliated. And now the people are using the term none to basically describe just about anybody who isn't an active participant in a religious, an organized or traditional form of religion. The problem is that inside the world of the nuns, and of course Ryan Berg of Get Religion and the Religion in Public website and He's almost omnipresent right now on this topic and wrote a book about it. Inside the word nuns are some very distinct groups of people who are radically different from each other. And he especially makes a distinction between the term nun as it tends to be meaning atheist or agnostic. Nun as in they don't have, they are nuns in terms of religious beliefs. And he draws a strong distinction from the larger number of people in the religiously unaffiliated group that he calls nothing in particulars. And most of these people are blue collar. Most atheists and agnostics are white collar. The nothing in particulars tend to be highly unemployed. They tend to be people who are struggling in American life and culture right now, whereas the atheists and agnostics tend to be highly educated, very politically powerful, very organized, they're all over Twitter, you don't dare tick them off. So it's even within the term none, where it's very good that that's in the style book, but the style book entry, you can already see it trying to handle the complexities within that word, within that term, just as there are complexities inside a word like evangelical, or there are complexities inside a word like charismatic, a charismatic Mormon is probably not the same as a charismatic member of the Church of God in Christ or the Assemblies of God. These terms have meanings, and at some point, to sum up get religion in a catchphrase, we need to know why 
most people, and I use the word most carefully, most people who run newsrooms don't seem to care if they have anyone on their staff who is trained in the use of religious language in the world of journalism. They don't treat religion like a real subject that's worthy of respect. Another new entry was denomination, and the entry simply says, use with caution some Christian bodies object to this label. That strikes me as really a rather neutral term. Yeah, well, it is, except that it's wrong. I mean, for example, is Eastern Orthodoxy a denomination? Well, Eastern Orthodoxy existed way before the Protestant Reformation, and we tend to use the word denomination to refer to organized Protestant religious groups that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So is the Roman Catholic Church a denomination? Well, in terms of church history, it isn't, and neither is Eastern Orthodoxy. And Southern Baptists, for example, really get some of them, not all of them, but some of them get mad when they're called a denomination because they go, no, we're not a denomination. We're a convention. We are a convention of independent, individual, autonomous Baptist congregations who choose to, as a convention, to do some things together, but they don't do anywhere near as much together in terms of law or economics or activities as a true denomination like the United Methodists or the Missouri Synod Lutherans. And you get down into issues like who owns the building, who owns the property. To give you a good example from the current news, one of the problems the Baptists, the Southern Baptists, are having with the issue of sexual abuse is that's the sort of subject that it's hard to deal with unless you have denominational powers that allow you to order your churches to do this or do that or take part in the following legal structure to control who's ordained and who isn't ordained. But the Baptists are not really a denomination. They're a convention. Now, can you imagine when you try to explain all of what I just said to a political reporter who's been shipped over to cover the state convention of the Southern Baptists because they're debating whether or not to, I don't know, oppose public schools or something like that. No, he's just going to call them a denomination and saying that being careful isn't worthwhile. Well, how careful do you have to be with terminology when you cover the U.S. Supreme Court? Does it matter if you abuse legal language when you cover the Supreme Court? Does it matter if you abuse the rules of football when you cover the Super Bowl? Yeah, but those are subjects that we think language matters. A couple other questions here, Terry. You wanted to talk a little bit about, and this is a more broad subject that I think this style book is intended to prevent with regard to religion, misusing religious terms to smear someone. You had mentioned evangelical yeah. or fundamentalist right. before. Do you think that the style book needs some further tweaking on, on in that particular direction? Well, it's the kind of thing that I don't know if the style book needs more content if we don't have more journalists who are committed to using the style book on these subjects. Once again, 
the vast majority of the problems that Get Religion writes about are not caused by the work of professional religion writers. Now, sure, there are religion reporters and re organizations that we argue about their fairness or their balance or how they handle this or that or the other, but I'm perfectly comfortable saying that 90% of the style issues related to religion terminology is caused by stories being written by people who are not trained to cover religion. And a part of the training to cover religion is knowing how to use the style book. Having that kind of itch in the back of your mind that when you write a phrase like Catholic priests are required to be celibate, something in your brain, the siren goes off that goes, hold it, hold it, hold it. Wait a minute. I'm writing a story about Pittsburgh, and in Pittsburgh, there are lots of Eastern Rite Catholic churches. Maybe I'd better be careful. But do you see how you don't even know to be careful if you're not trained to cover the subject? Yeah. My mother was a language arts teacher, and something I must have said to her a million, gazillion times when I was a child was she would say, oh, Terry, you misspelled that word. Go look it up in the dictionary. And I would say, how do I look it up in the dictionary? I don't know how to spell it. Well, this is a very similar thing. How do you know to look something up in the style book if you don't know enough about religion and care enough about religion to be able to comprehend that you may not know the rules and that the rules matter and that the rules are important and thus you need to go to the catechism of the journalism world and look something up. When most of our problems that you and I discuss with our listeners week after week after week, most of the time they're caused by people who don't know enough about religion or don't care enough about religion to have that warning siren go off in their brain that says, wait a minute, what does the style book say about that? Before I throw the word fundamentalist around at some people, maybe I ought to look that up. Well, if you care enough about the subject to look it up, you're probably not the source of most of the problems. So I guess that raises a question that I have as a non-journalist and, and seeing the proliferation of news, or at least news links, in social media, people increasingly getting their information via social media. Yeah. What I see is kind of throwing caution to the wind in a lot of reporting and and just throwing the the style book, whatever guidance it would offer on subjects like religion, out the door. Do journalists actually follow the book, even if they may have it sitting on their desk? Well, this may sound like I'm tweaking you a bit, but I would say that some of them, or many of them do, but that lots of them, or most of them don't. So in other words, built into the problems of the mechanisms of journalism, is that there are there are professionals who take their craft more seriously and the very existence of get religion the very existence of my entire career has been trying to say that religion is a subject worthy of journalism respect of journalistic respect and that it should be taken just as seriously as politics soccer, opera, 
the arts, and all kinds of other worlds that have centuries of history and highly nuanced terms and language, and that the people who care about those subjects care if you use those terms properly and care if your story is accurate in terms of their own history and their own understanding of their lives. And if you keep using language over and over and offending the people we call the stakeholders, a stakeholder is someone whose life will be changed by your story. If you keep offending stakeholders with how you use the language of their religious lives, what you're telling them is, you know what, I don't give a flip how this affects you. I don't care if what I'm writing is accurate or correct, because after all, it's just religion. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.